This is the Dating and Relationship Show with Laura Bellata from singleinthecity.ca, Toronto's news. Today's talk, 640 Toronto. Well, good evening, everyone. You're listening to the Dating and Relationship Show on AM640. I'm your host, Laura Bellata. And today we're going to talk about something that mm, you don't hear much about, and that is financial abuse and how it impacts relationships. On this episode, we're going to be diving into this topic with one of my faves, Leanne Townsend. Leanne is my go-to family lawyer on this show. So she's a regular and she's the owner of Townsend Family Law. She has 11 years of private practice uh, experience under her belt. She brings a balanced approach to her clients with her compassion and her people skills. Like guys, I love her and so should you. (laughs) And tonight we're going to be defining financial abuse, sharing the signs to look out for that can lead to this and how you can recover from financial abuse if you find yourself in this position. Uh, So thank you so much, Leanne, and happy holidays. I'm definitely getting into the Christmas spirit. Are you? I am. Happy holidays. It's nice to be here. We're not far off and I'm excited. Me too. So Let's talk about this. Before we get into what financial abuse is in a relationship, let's dissect what a healthy financial relationship should look like. Let's start with that. Well, a healthy financial relationship should definitely involve a sharing of financial information, perhaps even a sharing of roles. You know, often in a relationship, one party tends to be more the one who, you know, pays the bills and monitors that sort of thing. Um, and that's fine because not everyone I know I in my, when I was married, that was not something I particularly enjoyed doing. So I was happy to have my husband do it. But it definitely it involves sharing information. You need to have access to the, the you know the finances of the family, finances as a couple. Um, there shouldn't be restrictions that way. There should be um, you know some level of sharing expenses, it, and it needs to be something that's fair and that both parties consent to. You don't want to have a situation where you know perhaps everyone's keeping their money separate, which from a legal standpoint sometimes can be a wise thing. But if there's a, a power imbalance in who you know one party earns significantly more than the other, um, and so and the finances are kept separate, then that could be you know getting into a financial abuse situation. So it's really about one person not having power or control financially over the other and sharing information and having access to information. Right. So both parties should have a say, and their opinions both matter. Exactly. Uh, in a relationship like this. So they should both be valued and respected. And I also think people in healthy financial relationships share the load in a way that works for them, right? So some someone might be a stay-at-home parent. And I think it's important to value their work as well, even though it's not paid. You know, it costs a lot of money to outsource all this domestic work. I mean, it's a job. The, the work never gets done. <laughs> I work at home. But not well, I work from home, not just at home, I do both. Uh, And I'm telling you, like, there is never enough time in a day to get everything done. So we cannot undervalue people that work at home. For sure. Um, And and people who like a stay at home mom and whatnot, like that's a model that works for a lot of families, Mm -hmm. um, you know, but it's just important that that stay at home mom understands the family finances as well. She may not be as involved in them, but it's important that she at least understands them. Yes. And so financial abuse, this is a term that I'm sure many of us have not heard before, because it's not one that I hear kicking around all the time. What exactly is financial abuse? 
So financial abuse is a tactic that's used by abusers to have control over their victim through controlling their access to money, to assets, potentially to employment. Um, and, you know, if the reality is if you have financial control over somebody, you really have significant control over their life. So these type of financial abuser will, you know, make sure that the other party maybe doesn't have a job, they'll give them an allowance or not give them an allowance, but it'll, you know, they fully control all of the money coming into the, the, the household and decide on their own without the say of the other party, how things are being spent and on what. Mm-hmm. Now, would you say that financial abuse usually accompanies other form of abuse? Because I'm thinking this isn't the person's first rodeo. You know, if someone's abusing you financially, they're probably abusing you in other ways as well, especially emotionally, I would think. So I'm thinking you're probably going to be feeling vulnerable. You're going to be feeling isolated. You're going to be depressed. You're going to be anxious in some cases. And it could probably take away your independence too, a lot. Well, from what you're saying. So, what other uh, forms of abuse accompany a financial abuse, if any, if you think? Yeah, financial abuse is often found in relationships where there are other forms of abuse. And you touched on emotional abuse, and that's certainly um, a common one because any form of you know coercion and control, those are the signs of an abusive relationship. And they it manifests themselves in different ways, whether it's emotional abuse, financial abuse, physical abuse, sexual abuse. Um, and the reality is like, if you're in a relationship where there's physical abuse or emotional abuse, chances are there's also going to be financial abuse. They do tend to go hand in hand. And, you know, a very high percentage of relationships of domestic violence have financial abuse as an element of them. Um, and then there's also degrees of financial abuse. Uh, you know, there could be um, one party who is a little more controlling over the finances, but it may not be, you know, full on financial abuse, it may be a level of control. And, and so there's some warning flags there that, you know, you need to be mindful of and be careful of. But it, it may not be uh, the complete exploitation that full on financial abuse can involve. What if one person spends a lot of money? And the other person's saying, well, I'm just trying to protect our assets, because if not, then you're going to spend everything because you have a spending problem. What if that's the case? <laughs> if you're trying to control the finances because your partner has a spending problem? That's not necessarily financial abuse. I mean, if your partner has a spending problem and you've, you know, and it's affecting the household or affecting you know, your own credit and, and whatnot, um, trying to have some level of control over that, I think, is different. It, but in that type of situation, chances are that, you know, the person who has a spending problem may admit they have a spending problem. And, and maybe they're saying, you know what, like, I want you to take charge of this, because I know I have a spending problem, and I'm going to spend that money. But it, it has to be consensual and or mutually agreeable on some level. Otherwise, I think you're running into a situation of financial abuse. Yeah, I would assume there are quite a few signs that you may be in a relationship with uh, a financial abuser. So what are some of the things that we should be looking out for? Other than what you just mentioned, because you did mention a few, but I'm assuming there may be more. Yeah, there's definitely more. So I mean, the number one sign is that there's some level of power and control over the money by one person over the other. So it could be that 
when only one party has access to the bank accounts. Uh, only one party, you know, has a credit card and the other party is supplemental on it. Now that in and of itself isn't necessarily financial abuse because one party may have a much higher credit, better credit rating and be able to, you know, have a higher credit limit, but it's when you couple it with some of these other things. Um, when one party doesn't even have access to bank accounts and maybe has an allowance that they're given by uh, the other party. Uh, another sign would be if you want to work and your spouse uh, doesn't want you to work uh, or sabotages your employment when you do, you know, obtain a job, they they call your employer, or they do things to, to sabotage it. Uh, another form of financial abuse is trying to destroy the other party's credit rating. Uh, I've seen that happen a lot where, oh um, you know, a couple, um, you know, for, for whatever reason, the house was purchased and put in. Uh, the non-breadwinner's name um, and the mortgage was somehow put in that person's name or there's credit cards in their name, but they were relying on the breadwinner to pay them. And so you get into a situation where the breadwinner stops paying these things and it starts affecting the credit rating of the other party who doesn't have access to money or an income to to be making the payments on these things. I, I've had clients where they've had their credit rating completely destroyed by, you know, their ex in the later stages of the marriage or early separation because of something like this. Um, Can that be reversed, Leanne? Uh, not to my knowledge. You, you have to rebuild your credit just the same way as you would uh, if, you know, that if you had been responsible yourself for destroying your credit. Um, so, you know, that's, would be an example. Uh, and, uh, you know, and sometimes too, they'll put, um, with respect to debt, they'll, they'll accumulate a whole bunch of like income tax debt or CRA debt, and you could potentially be responsible for your partner's, you know, CRA debt. And so that can be also a, a form of abuse where you didn't even know that your partner had this and they've somehow, they haven't been paying their taxes and paying, you know, money to Revenue Canada that, that they owe. And then suddenly you have Revenue Canada coming after you because it's your spouse's uh, debt. Or the IRA if you're in the States. Yeah, exactly. Um, and, you know, I mean, I guess the, another example, this is one of the more extreme examples, but you where you have a partner who's forcing you, like they're staying at home doing nothing potentially, but they're forcing you to go out and work your support, you're actually the breadwinner and supporting the family, but you're handing over your paycheck every, you know, two weeks or every week or however often you're paid to your partner. And they're still controlling the finances, even though you are the one who actually has the job. What a, what a disaster. We're going to take a quick break. And after the break, we're going to continue talking about some of the signs of financial abuse and so much more. Stay with us. You're listening to the Dating and Relationship Show with Laura Bellata from singleinthecity.ca, Toronto's news. Today's talk, 640 Toronto. Welcome back to the Dating and Relationship Show on AM640 Toronto. I'm your host, Laura Bellata, with my special guest, Leanne Townsend. Jumping back into our chat on what to look out for when it comes to financial abuse. Well, you, you named quite a few there. What about someone using your money without your knowledge or consent or signing legal documents, maybe forging your signature, for example? 
I'm thinking that would be financial abuse. And how do people get away with forging signatures? Because I I was in a situation recently where where someone forged my mother's signature. It, It had nothing to do with financial abuse in a relationship. But I'm thinking, how is this person getting away with this? If somebody forges your signature, what can you do? Yeah, well, certainly taking someone's money without their consent and forging their signature on something, are, those are definitely forms of financial abuse. Uh, but they're also, it's illegal to forge somebody's signature. So if you're forging someone's signature, that's something where the police really technically should be laying a charge. Will of, they though, Leanne? Because they may not. That's the problem. I mean, it is illegal. It is, it's, it is totally illegal. So when you say like, how are people getting away with it? They're getting away with it because it, police are not you know, enforcing it because maybe in their eyes, they have more serious stuff that they need to be spending their time on. So something like that, they're, they're not, but it could, if it involves a lot of money, I would think that the police then would get involved if it's provable. I mean, that's the other thing is you have to, you know, there has to be some semblance of how, how you're going to prove who it was that forged your signature. Mm-hmm. Well, in this case, there's proof. Um, and the signature doesn't look anything like my mother's. But I'm thinking, like, if we call the police, would they even do anything about it? So thank you for clarifying that. But it's just ridiculous. How can people get away with that? Well, it didn't have it wasn't a it didn't have to do with a relationship. It had to do with blinds (laughs) that she bought. But still. But then there should be some obligation on whoever accepted payment that did they check the signature? You know, because that's if someone if you make a payment on something and have to sign for it, then there should be some obligation, I think on the the vendor or whatever that if, you know, to look at the credit card, is that the same signature on the back or to look at they the didn't signature do that. piece of ID? Yeah. So then maybe they have some liability then. Mm-hmm. They didn't well, we got our money back, but now she's trying to take my parents to small claims court, but this is going to come up because we have this proof that my mother's signature doesn't look anything like the one that she, she forged. (laughs) So she's like, duh. Anywho, what about people that are no longer in a relationship and one party refuses to contribute to shared costs or child support? Is that a form of, I, I would think that's a form of financial abuse, but not while you're in that relationship after the fact. Uh, definitely. It's a form of financial abuse and it, and it goes on. I mean, often in that type of situation, there were probably elements of financial abuse during the relationship too, because people don't usually dramatically change who, who they are. Uh, they, they were a certain, that person all along, but maybe it wasn't manifesting, you know, as, as strongly, but post separation and divorce, uh, financial abuse is huge. There's, you know, when someone has significantly more money than the other person, and they can afford to drag things on, or they can afford to go into litigation and drag things on in court, and they, you know, afford their lawyers, but and they know the other party can't afford a lawyer. Um, That's a significant form of financial abuse uh, that, that goes on regularly. And, you know, not paying child support, not paying spousal support, not complying with, you know, court orders that order you to pay certain amounts of money for support. All of that is definitely financial abuse. And, and it goes on like every day, unfortunately. What does that look like in the eyes of the judge when someone has to represent themselves because they don't have any money? 
I mean, it, uh, judges I mean, if you don't have any money for a lawyer, like I have a friend who's going through a similar situation, they're, they're being threatened uh, and she can't afford a lawyer. And he's trying to get money from her, clearly knowing that she doesn't have this money. So first of all, where would the judge get it from? Like where, yeah, where would she be getting this money? And then also like, does, will the judge take that into account that this person doesn't have any money? They can't afford a lawyer. So how are they going to pay this other person back when first, well, it, you know what, I'm not going to go into detail about it, but you know what I'm saying? Yeah. I mean, there's certainly in family law in particular, there's over 50% of litigants are self-represented because they can't afford a lawyer or they choose not to have a lawyer. That's Uh, interesting. Yeah. It's a real, it's a real issue of access to justice and affordability of legal services is definitely a, a significant issue because in family law, there's a lot of, you know, forms that have to be filled out. Like there's a lot of things that are even lawyers um, sometimes get wrong and, and and have trouble figuring out, let alone someone who, you know, has no legal background. So it's challenging. And I think it, that someone who has a lawyer definitely has uh, an advantage over someone who's representing themselves. But judges are used to it because it is such a high percentage of people who are self-repping. It's something that the judges are used to. And they do give some leeway to self-represented people in terms of complying with some of the rules or um you know certain things but at the end of the day they they can't completely um bend over backwards to accommodate it either because it's not fair if one party's having to file things in certain time frames and respond to certain deadlines and then the other party because they're self-represented isn't but so there's some leeway but not but not significant um and if someone, you know, doesn't have money for like, uh, like if someone's suing somebody for something or like from a relationship, so say, you know, the guy is saying the the woman owes him a bunch of money for something and she's saying she, she doesn't. And not only that, she doesn't have the money to pay it. Or nothing was uh, documented and then they yeah. want the money. I mean, that that's where it starts getting more in whether you have the money or don't have the money isn't really the, the legal issue. The legal issue is whether legally you owe that person that money, whether there's a case to be made um, that you owe that person that money. So that's step A. And if you if if the legal case is there that you owe that person that money, then a judge is going to render a decision that you owe that person that money. But then the next stage is going to be, OK, well, if you don't have any money, how are you going to pay it? And you know, so enforcing it and, you know, whether someone's putting liens on your home, if you own a home or they're trying to find a way to garnish your weight, like with child support and spousal support, you can get someone's wages garnished. So there's, you know, ways of enforcing that. Um, but enforcement is a separate issue from whether you actually, you know, owe somebody money. So since we're on this topic, how does that work? If, you are given something and in a relationship, somebody buys you something um, and they may want the money back down the road. Is it considered a gift unless you have something in writing? Generally, um, if you're in a relationship with somebody and you give them something, um, whether it's, you know, jewelry or money or artwork or, or whatever, it, 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 the, the presumption would be that it's a gift. Um, if, if you're doing it as like a loan, um, you would want to have something in writing documenting that, you know, I, Leanne Townsend, am loaning you, Laura Bellotta, 
$10,000 and, you know, the interest rate is X, Y, Z, and it's to be paid on these dates. And, you know, or, and you would draft like a promissory note or a loan document or a mortgage document if it's a mortgage and, you know, those sorts of things. So if you don't have something like that in place, and it's just like a verbal thing, and, and you, it's, you're giving it to somebody you're in a relationship with, then the presumption is that that's going to be a gift and that you don't owe that money back um, or that item, you know, back to them, um, just because the relationship went sour. Okay. Now, would a text be suffice or you're talking a legal document? Well, again, it's like, a, it's just an issue. A legal document would be ideal. So in an ideal world, you're going to have a legal document. If you, if you, if all you have is a text where it's acknowledged. So if you send a text saying, you know, I'm just confirming that, you know, you agree that I'm loaning you $5,000 and, you know, you're going to pay me back in six months and the other party texts back, I agree. That would be one piece of evidence that the person arguing it's a loan would use to try and prove their case. So, but then, you know, the other side might say, well, how do you know that was me that texted you back? And how do we know, you know, that that wasn't altered in some way. And, and, you know, those sorts of things would go to undermine the the text. So the judge in that case would have to look at, you know, the whole balance of the evidence and the credibility of the people involved and and then make a determination. And it gets complicated, doesn't it, Leanne? Your head must spin sometimes. Oh, it does. Sometimes there's funny stories. Sometimes there's just, you're shaking your head at the situations people (laughs) find themselves in. You must need to take long, hot baths. <laughs> I definitely need bubbles. to find ways to de-stress, that's for sure. Yeah. Now, what if someone uses money to control you in a relationship? I'm assuming that's a form of financial abuse. And I, I'm thinking of the narcissistic relationships where the narcissist manipulates and uses money to control their victim. Definitely. It's, it's a form of, of financial abuse. And, you know, I think it's a traditional relationship, right? Like the man paid for everything. The man really controlled the finances. Like, you know, 30 years ago, that was probably a very common way that relationships were. And, and, and that's changed now, but there's still, you know, I think a, a lot of women, you know, they, when they're dating, you know, they like it when the guy is paying, they like the thought of the guy, being the one to to pay for all these things, and you know, not in comes with like, the price not, usually, doesn't it, Leanne? It, it, that's what I was going to say, and I don't want to say that it always does, but <laughs> you know, sometimes yeah. there is. A lot of times there is, and that's why you have to be careful when you get into a relationship and someone is buying you everything under the sun. We call that love bombing, uh, and and controls you with that. And so I've seen way too many women in relationships like this. I I actually dated someone like that too. And after we broke up, he wanted everything back, but he tried to buy me with things. Everything was uh, like, every time I'd see him, he'd show up with jewelry and I'd like, stop buying me. I started feeling uncomfortable because of the line of work that I do. I'm thinking, is this guy love bombing me? He kept doing it. And uh, when I did eventually break up with him, that relationship didn't last long. He he wanted everything back. And he even got a, a lawyer to draft up a, a legal letter. I think you 
took a look at you. You took a look at it, Leanne, for me back in the day. Yeah, I remember, remember that. This, this, yeah, I remember it. <laughs> yeah, no, it, it's crazy though. Like you know, and 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 he, I think, from what I understand, he kind of eventually went. He knew. I'm sure his lawyer told him that he really didn't have a case. He was maybe just trying to bully you initially, hoping you just like you know, give in because that's, you know, what these abusive people, they're used to bullying and getting what they want through their Mm -hmm. bullying. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, that's the thing. It's a red flag, right? If someone is constantly showering you in gifts and spending money on you, there usually is, they're expecting something usually in return. Yes, I agree. Now, what if someone's been financially abused? What can they do? Where can they find support? And we can start off with uh, helping people while they're currently in a relationship. Well, I think the first step, if you're in any form of abusive relationship, and this certainly includes financially abusive, you need to have a safety plan. So if you're in the relationship and you want to leave, uh, you need to develop a safety plan and you need to develop a support network. Um, whether it's a women's shelter, whether it's family or friends, whether it's your employer or, or whoever it might be, um, making a safety plan is, is the first uh, step in all of this. We're going to continue this conversation right after the break. Stay with us, everybody. Welcome back to the Dating and Relationship Show with Laura Bellotta from singleinthecity.ca. Toronto's News, today's talk, 640 Toronto. And welcome back to the Dating and Relationship Show on AM640. I'm Laura Bellotta, joined by Leanne Townsend, family lawyer. And we're getting back to our chat on financial abuse and how we can find support. So please continue, Leanne. Yes. So before the break, I was mentioning that having a safety plan is the first step if you want to leave a financially abusive relationship. So part of that safety plan is having your support network, but part of it as well is going to have to be a way for you to financially get on your feet. Because if the other party is controlling everything and if you don't work, uh, you know, then you're, it's going to be very hard to, to leave and not have any money. So one of the things you might want to do if you can do it is try and find a way to start saving some money, whether somehow you can discreetly make, you know, withdrawals or somehow out of the, the, a bank account and just you know, open up an account in your own name and start putting money in there where your abuser can't detect it. You know, that's one thing. I mean, some people aren't able to do that. Um, another, you know, option would be finding a job if you can do that so that at least you'll have some form of income coming in when you leave. Uh, getting a credit card is that, you know, a lot of people who are financially abused, they don't have credit cards in their own name, they don't have a credit rating. So getting a credit card with just a small, you know, limit on it is a way to start establishing your credit. And then that way, you know, if you want to go sign a lease at some point, or, you know, take on other forms of debt, you've at least got a credit rating. Um, shelters recognize like women's shelters, um, definitely are very aware of financial abuse and they assist women with who are victims of that. So contacting a women's shelter, they can definitely connect you with, you know, all the resources that you need. And, and there's people in the community as well. I don't have like names handy, but there's organizations that, you know, assist people, uh, with this type of thing. And, and the women's shelter would be again, like a great resource to connect, victims of financial abuse with people who can assist them in the community. Is there a typical victim of financial abuse? 
No, there really isn't. I mean, it, it goes across all um, socioeconomic levels. I mean, even people who don't have a lot of money, there could still be a financial abuser controlling his wife. And then in a very wealthy family, um, you know, where there's a breadwinner who's making millions of dollars and the wife is at home. I'm being, I'm stereotyping again with the wife being the one at home, but um you know, definitely it cuts across all socioeconomic, all education levels. There's lots of people who are victims of financial abuse who are educated and who, for whatever reasons, gave up their career and are at home and they're being financially abused. All ethnicities, um, there really isn't a typical victim. How about a typical profile of someone who's financially abusive? You know, what are maybe some of the red flags that we can look out for in people who might be financially abusive? Definitely, there's more commonality there. So, you know, people who are financially abusive are people who like to have control. Uh, and so their desire for control isn't usually just restricted to the finances. You'll see it in, you know, other areas. Do they want to look on your phone? Do they control, you know, do they not let you go out with your friends? Do they need to know where you are all the time? Like those types of things, that kind of controlling personality is generally a common thing with somebody who is a financial abuser. Um, they are, they do tend to be men more often than women, but that's not to say that a, a woman can't be financially abusive. It, it's just in a lot of relationships, the man is still more the, the breadwinner. And so it tends to be men more. Um, but the, the, the coercion and control and that power and control type of personality is definitely the, the common trait. So it's something to look for in the dating stage, because usually you can even see signs of it. <laughs> stay away that's right oh my yeah i've come across a few of those in my lifetime i think we all have yeah no for sure <laughs> all right so we realize we may have gotten into a relationship with uh, someone who is financially abusive how can we protect ourselves well i i'd say like listen look for the red flags early on and then head out. <laughs> don't yeah. hang around because people don't change. So that's exactly I what I would say. I mean, the, if you're seeing the red flags, abusers don't change. So it's, you know, mm. it's probably only going to get worse the more involved you get. So if the flags are there and if you're questioning them, um, you know, speak to a friend who might be objective or, you know, somebody who can give you some objective advice on, you know, whether those flags are, you know, things you should be listening to, but we usually know in our gut, um, when we, when a flag is there, we are, our mind might Thank kind you. of talk us out of it, but our gut usually knows. Um, and so I would say, you know, just, you, you want to, you, there's no point in staying with somebody if you see the signs that they're going to be financially abusive. If you're already in and you're intertwined, then, you know, I think we have to go back to the idea of having a safety plan and making sure that, You've got some money socked away and you, you're getting a credit rating and having a job is, you know, as much as many of us sometimes hate our jobs, um, and it, it, the reality is it does give you some financial independence because you have an income, um, you have people outside of your relationship who you're interacting with usually, although I guess, you know, there's a lot of people who have jobs where they work from home, but it still does any kind of financial independence is going to help protect you from being financially abused. So you mentioned a little earlier, just a couple questions ago, that the typical profile of someone who is financially abusive, maybe someone controlling where they want to know where you are at all times. 
but is that not something that is kind of common when you're like, let's say married, you know, um, you go about your day, you have conversations with your partner. It's like, oh, what are you doing today? Oh, where are you going today? Um, what's the difference between that and what you had mentioned? Well, I think that there's a like an excessiveness to it. I mean, it's one thing, you know, to kind of you have an idea of your partner's schedule, you know, oh, yeah, tonight, um, she's not going to be home, she's out with her friends, kind of thing. But it, it's more like, you know, if they're wanting you to check in, or or if you are out with your your friends, they're messaging you constantly, you know, when are you going to be home? Who are you with? Right? Um, where, where exactly, you know, or they show up <laughs> there, you know, things like that. I think, I think it's, there's definitely there's just kind of the knowing because you care and you're in a relationship and you're sharing your days and then there's this more controlling element where it, it's not just knowing it's trying to put restrictions on it and um interfere with it maybe being negative you know negative about it like why do you have mm. to go there you need to come home right after work I you right. need you know, it's like you have a curfew or something yeah I just wanted to clarify wanted you to clarify that just because there is a difference you know as yes. I think uh, typically when you're in a relationship it's nice to tell your partner what you're doing where you're going you know what's your schedule like when can I expect you home and and so forth so thank you and uh just quickly before the break obviously family courts recognize financial abuse as a form of abuse and you can sue someone for this correct um you can it's it's tied in with like just the whole um tort of domestic violence so if you're in a an abusive relationship for a lengthy period of time and there's been different types of abuse the courts have recently recognized what we call a tort um which means you can sue your abuser um, for the abuse. And so um, that's the way that it would be done. Um, if you're, if it's like, you could sue somebody if somehow they've taken something that was yours and whatnot, but when it's in a domestic relationship, it, it's usually harder to do that. So this tort kind of provides uh, a way for people who are victims of abuse to get money from their abusers to com- to compensate them. Not that you can really be compensated, you know, it, it, truly for abuse, but it does provide I guess the next best thing. What about all the mental anguish that they put you through all those years? What about that? Exactly. I can't exactly. wait to for that. <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. <laughs> we're going to take one last quick break. And then after the break, we're going to discuss recovery from financial abuse. Stay with us. Show with Laura Bellata from singleinthecity.ca, Toronto's news. Today's talk, 640 Toronto. Welcome back to the Dating and Relationship Show on AM640 Toronto. I'm Laura Bellata with my favorite divorce lawyer in the city here, Leanne Townsend, <laughs> getting back into our discussion on financial abuse recovery. How about the children? I think this is an important one to talk about. How does financial abuse affect children and how can we protect them? It definitely affects children if one of their parents is you know, being financially abused by the other one. Um, first of all, with them growing up in a home where that's going on, you, you're running the risk that you're teaching them that that's normal behavior and that's how relationships are. So they may end up being financial abusers themselves when they're older or being victims of financial abuse because they're going to model their parents' behavior. So that's one way. 
And then a second way would be, um, you know, during separation and divorce, if one party is being financially abused by the other party, their standard of living may be drastically lower. And so when the, when the children are with that parent, there's going to be such a difference between the, the socioeconomic level in the two houses that's going to impact the children. And often people who are financially abusive with their spouse, you know, they tend to be that way with the, the controlling aspect also tends to spill over with the children. And so the children will probably find as they get older, that parent is, you know, very controlling with money towards them and allowing them, you know, whatever they're going to spend on their clothes or if they're going out with their friends. And so they may find they have the same types of restriction and control that the their parent has that's being financially abused. Right. Now, if you're in a relationship with someone and you suspect that you're being financially abused, do you think that there's any hope for that relationship? Do you think it can be saved at some point? Because I would think these abusers they're not going to make any changes. So I, I just don't know. Like I would say no, um, it, especially if it, the relationship's too far gone, depends. And I know that sometimes when you're dealing with a narcissist, they have to hit rock bottom in order to change. And it's very rare that a narcissist will change. But what do you think? Do you think a relationship can be saved? I mean, I tend to agree with what you just said. I think it's very unlikely that someone who is abusive, who's a financial abuser is going to change. It's not to say it's impossible. I mean, if they, you know, they would probably involve a lot of therapy and counseling uh, for them and for them to admit that they have a problem. First of all, that like that's most of these people don't admit that they're doing anything wrong. So if, if they're actually willing to admit it, um, I think there's some hope that maybe they can change it, um, but they have to really, really want to. And I think that's very rare to find. So I think it's not completely impossible, but it's it's unlikely. Yeah. Unfortunately, guys, it really is unlikely. This person has to be willing to get help. And, and yeah. for the most part, that just doesn't happen. So uh, people are just not going to change on their own, just miraculously, again, unless they hit rock bottom, and they come to terms with what they've lost, they almost have to lose before they change. Now, what about somebody who is going through financial abuse, and they want to see a lawyer like yourself? What's the process? Like, where, so, where do they start? Like, tell, tell us the process, because some people may be listening to the show, and they may want to talk to you. So so one step that they should do is so if someone's out there and they're in a relationship and they want to leave and they know they're going to need legal advice, uh, the first thing would be to see if they qualify for legal aid, because a lot of people who are being financially abused probably do. So they should contact here in Ontario, Legal Aid Ontario, different provinces in Canada have you know, different um, organizations for that. And I think the US has something, I don't know what it's called, but they're, they're, definitely that's something people should check out is, is there free legal assistance out there that they would qualify for? And then they can get a lawyer through that. If, if they don't qualify, or if somebody who's listening lives somewhere where they don't have this type of service, 
Um, there are lawyers out there who will give, you know, free consultations. Um, the, again, here in Ontario, where I practice law, the Law Society of Ontario has something called the Lawyer Referral Service, where people, and it's on their website, people can go there and they can get, get referred to a lawyer who practices law in their specific area that they need and in the area of the city or where province where they live. And that lawyer has agreed to provide 30 minutes um, of their time for free uh, as a for a consultation. Um, I offer reduced rate consultation, so I don't charge my full normal rate. I offer a reduced rate. So I, there's various options that way um, for people to get some legal advice. And it's, it's definitely a good idea uh, to get an understanding of what your rights are um, and what can be done to perhaps assist you with your situation and you know maybe even as part of a safety plan lawyers are often involved in that so it could be helpful to to speak to someone um again before i would say it's better to to get legal advice before you leave rather than after yeah i agree with all that and and also the one thing that stops people from getting uh help is because of their finances and they think well i'm not going to be able to afford this you know what's that threshold though uh, for using legal assistance um, or legal aid? What do you think? Just to give people an idea, like if you make under what, 20K a year or? Um, to know? be honest, I'm not sure what the income threshold is. I know like if you own property and stuff, like generally um, you're not supposed to own property, but I've seen situations where there's like a matrimonial home and um, a stay-at-home mom, for example, has been able to get legal aid, but then she might have to pay some of it back from proceeds of the home when it's sold. So that's a way for them to qualify. But I, I'm not sure what their the income threshold is. So I don't want to guess at it. It's, it's not overly high, I'm sure, because there's a lot of people, otherwise, we wouldn't have 50% or more of litigants representing themselves in family court, because more of them would qualify for legal aid. Mm. So I think it's pretty low. All right. Well, thank you so much, Leanne. And thank you, everybody, for listening to this week's episode of the Dating and Relationship Show. Financial abuse, it doesn't get a lot of attention, but it's real. It affects a lot of people. Uh, and there are ways to get out and recover. So Leanne, I would love people to continue the conversation with you if they are going through uh, something like this or any other family law matter. How can they get a hold of you, my love? The best place is my website, which is www.townsandfamilylaw.ca. Um, I'm also active on social media, uh, particularly Instagram and Leanne Townsend Life. So you can definitely contact me on at either place. My website has my phone number, my uh, email and all of that as well. And if you're ever in doubt, you can always check out my Instagram because uh, I follow her. <laughs> Official <laughs> Laura Bellotta on Instagram, TikTok. And also check out my website, singleinthecity.ca for upcoming events and two New Year's parties that you uh, may want to attend. Well, thank you so much for joining us tonight and uh, see you next week. Ciao for now. <laughs>